Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got Derek Samanovich. After a motorcycle accident in 2007, chose to take control of his life. In 2015, he chose to have his leg amputated and have has never looked back. He's representing Canada and sitting volleyball at the Parapan um, Games in Peru in 2019, where they brought home the bronze medal. After that, he went overseas to play wheelchair basketball uh, with Cologne 99ers. Later, he went back to Europe to pursue sitting volleyball as well. In 2021, Polish club, and I'll let you pronounce that because I can't pronounce it, became oh. Polish champions. Uh, also in 2021, his club team of Leverkusen in Germany became German champions. So welcome on to the show, Derek. Thanks so much for having me. That's my absolute pleasure. And you are the first sitting volley ma- male that I've had on, on, on the show. So kudos. Okay, awesome. Yeah, thank you. So if we go right back before starting uh, sport, Derek... Talk to me. Talk to me, and talk to the for the listeners. Your family background, because obviously surname is not Canadian. Where where does the origins start from? You from the, the your family, obviously uh, emigrating to Canada. Yeah, I uh, I was born in Poland. Um, my family, my parents decided to emigrate to Canada when I was five. Um, couple years later so we stayed with our grandparents for a couple years when my parents were coming down here and settling down and then when I was seven in 89 uh, my grandparents brought us over and we reunited with my parents and I've been living in Canada full-time ever since Um, you know apart from the training that I've gone um, overseas to Germany um, and back to Poland to play a couple tournaments so still fluent Polish Uh, fluent-ish you know luckily my parents um, had a speaking Polish at home when we were growing up. So uh, luckily I was able to keep my tongue and my language pretty strong. So yeah, when I went back to Poland, I was able to communicate with everyone. And that part was pretty easy. A lot easier than trying to communicate with people in German, I found. My German is, is not very good at all. <laughs> so what was the experience like for you? Because obviously you and I, we conversed a little bit over Instagram while you were over in Europe. What was the experience like of obviously training in in germany and then obviously competing in poland doing what is still Mm -hmm. a pandemic right so i found that um i i I mentioned like you mentioned right i was i was in uh, in germany for wheelchair basketball in 2019 when the pandemic hit so that ended up cutting our season a bit short um the playoffs uh were totally eliminated and i flew back in in march just as the pandemic was taking off um, obviously, like here in Canada, there was a lot of lockdowns instituted and, um, you know, the training opportunities here were quite limited. Um, eventually, there were some exemptions instituted, but for the first long while, uh, it was literally just, you know, hitting balls against the wall in my backyard. Like That was what my training was. Like, you know, I had um, after we came back, I was living at my sister's place. Um, and, you know, I brought a stationary bike over, I brought over some weights, but my training wasn't really what you would think of a, an Olympic or a Paralympic athlete to be. Um, so doing as much as I can on my own, eventually I reached out to some athletes that I, I made connections with in Germany and I, I asked what their training looked like. So um, it was a lot more what I would normally think of training as. So like they were training uh, three days a week there. Um, You know, they were doing rapid tests eventually before practices. So when I went back in um, 2020, yeah, we were doing three days a week, Monday, uh, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, And we were doing rapid tests prior to, everyone was doing a rapid test prior to the sessions just to make sure that, you know, there wasn't any real, mitigating the risk as much as possible, I guess, right? Um, you know, there were lockdowns instituted in Germany, so you weren't allowed to really do anything apart from go to the grocery store, um, 
you know, and come home and pretty much can stay at home. The sports uh, were given exemptions. So like Germany had qualified. Um, actually, at that first year, we were working towards, um, uh, we were training towards a Paralympic qualifier. Uh, that was for us, it was held in, in June of 2020. So that first year, the exemption was given to, to the, that German team because of the fact that they were training towards um, qualifying for the Paralympics. Um, so that was for me, it was like September to December that first time. And then I came back home and we were still in Canada at this point. This uh, high performance exemption was also given to us. The way it was worded, it was towards uh, for para, uh, Tokyo bound athletes or athletes that are training towards a qualifier. So that first time, you know, everything was good. So I came back in December, started training, getting back on court here in Canada. And, uh, you know, back in the weight room and that kind of stuff because I was given that exemption. And then we went to our tournament in June in Duisburg, which was in Germany as well. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't qualify for the Paralympics. Uh, I feel like the event went really well for us. Uh, we, we performed, I think, a lot better than we have in previous events. But uh, unfortunately, we didn't qualify. And then when I came home, I was shocked to find out that I no longer uh, um, qualified for this exemption. So at that point, my training went back to pretty much zero is whatever I could do in my house. Um, I made the best of it. I, I got a VR system and um, I tried to do as much as I could with like reflex kind of stuff, um, like those kind of games on, on there. But my training was back to like, you know, very, very limited. Um, and then I started looking into the opportunity to go back to Germany again. So like I came back home in June and in July, I was back in Germany again, um, back with my club in Leverkusen. And yeah, same thing. So at that point, we were going three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday with Leverkusen. Uh, I was in the weight room four days a week. Um, and then I uh, made contacts uh, with a club in, in Netherlands. Uh, you know, the restrictions started to, to weaken and uh, we were allowed to travel and that kind of stuff. Uh, we were still doing our, our testing three days, uh, three times a week with our uh, rapid tests. Um, so then I reached out. I found a club in, in Netherlands. I started training with them um, as well as the Netherlands national team uh, through one of my contacts, Dominic um, Albrecht. <laughs> he was uh, being recruited by uh, a coach from this Polish club team, Silesia. Um, for a few years now, that, that coach has, has been trying to get him over. The coach's name is Adam Malik. Um, so I told Dominic, I'm like, hey, man, if you're looking to go to Poland and play this year, like, I would love to get the opportunity to, to get more competitions in. I felt like here in Canada, that's one of the things that we're lacking is, is the opportunities to, to train and, and play at a high level. So I'm like, I told him, if you're looking to go, like, I would love to come and, you know, maybe we can both play on the same team. This would be an amazing experience for both of us, I feel. So yeah, he reached out to the coach and, um, yeah, the coach wanted us to come over. So there was the way that it works in Poland is um, the club system is like a, the nationals is like a three three tournaments um, system. Uh, so it's one weekend uh, for it's one weekend the first weekend of the month for three months. So we had three tournaments. Uh, in that first tournament, uh, Dominic was in Tokyo with uh, the German team, so he didn't attend. But the next two, he did. And yeah, we were able to, to go undefeated that season. Uh, you know, we won uh, won the Polish championship. And yeah, it was, it was a great experience. The, you know, by the end of it, uh, at the peak of my training in Germany, I was, I was going seven, seven sessions a week on court and four days a week in the weight room. So I feel like that was um, a lot better than I would have gotten in Canada at the time and uh, at a much higher level, like the, the team that I was training with. Uh, the club team had uh, four current national team members and I believe three or four ex-national team members that had, you know, won um, bronze at the 2012 uh, Games in London. So my experience there was was very good. So was it a bit of a culture shock coming back to Canada again? Uh, yeah, you know, when, when we came back from the qualifier uh, to find out that for some reason, Canada decided to pull our exemption and we could no longer train. You know, for in my mind, we're, we're still Paralympic athletes. We're still high-performance athletes. We still, you know, require to train at that level. And, you know, I understand that, unfortunately, we didn't qualify for the Tokyo Games. But, you know, 
the next games in Paris were just three years away, right? Like, you know, three years sounds like a long time, but in the grand scheme of things, like I don't really think it is, right? And if, if we lose out on, you know, three months, six months, a year of training because we're locked down and other countries aren't, you know, we just keep falling behind. So, yeah, it was definitely a, a shock to, to come back home and, uh, you know, be stuck at, you know, minimal training at best and doing whatever I could at home in my house. Uh, so that was why I decided to take my my fate into my own hands and, and go back to Germany. Um, you know, I understand that volleyball and sitting volleyball is a very, you know, team-based game. It's, I feel like it's unlike a lot of other sports, whereas, you know, in, in basketball, like whether it's standing or wheelchair, like one player can have a huge impact, right? Like he can carry the ball up the court, he can shoot by himself, like whatever, right? He can, he can do everything. In football, same thing, right? One guy can dribble up the court and um, or up the field up the pitch, I guess, as you say, and, and score a goal. But in volleyball, you literally have to pass the ball to someone else and they have to pass it back to you, right? So, um, you know, I understand that, you know, me training uh, somewhere else, like isn't our whole team training somewhere else, but at least like one piece is, is getting stronger while everyone else is hopefully maintaining their level or, or getting a little bit better as, as much as they could, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people be be surprised to hear you speak, Derek, in terms of, Obviously, you've played professionally overseas in wheelchair basketball and played at a high level uh, in another Paralympic sport. Obviously, for me, that's 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 kind of uh, it's 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 uh, it's an achievement to be said. But be it for the everybody person listening, how much talent? How much is it talent? How much is it nurture for you to be able to transition from? one sport to another and there's not a lot of similarities i can 100 percent tell you it is all grind it was all grind so uh you know when i when i was growing up i played sports quite a bit like that was i guess my passion so my two major sports were uh volleyball and basketball uh, i was definitely better at volleyball i had more of a passion for volleyball you know um from the, my high school years uh you know when i was in high school i was a coach uh, when I was in my senior year, I coached my junior team. Uh, I was a certified referee. I played uh, in clubs. I, you know, did all that stuff for basketball. I just played on my high school team. Like that was pretty much it. And I picked like played some pickup in at the park with my friends. Right. Um, but then, yeah, around like 18, 20 real life hit and I had to get a job and start working, making money. Right. So the sports kind of fell away. And then uh, my accident was when I was 26, I believe, maybe 27 around there. And I was 26. And then, you know, the first three to four years of that were literally just like all pre all rehab, just hundred percent rehab. And then, yeah, I started playing volleyball, sitting volleyball in 2012 and had a passion for that. And it was, you know, in 2016, when we didn't qualify for uh, their games in Rio, that was when I kind of pivoted towards um, wheelchair basketball. And at first it was in my mind, it was just um, a way to cross train, like, that's literally all it was. Um, you know, um, I live in Toronto and uh, three of my friends that were playing, uh, playing with us, uh, sitting volleyball or had played sitting volleyball with us, uh, were approached by uh, Mike Frogley, a legend in, in, in wheelchair basketball out here, and asked to come to the academy, which is um, like a full-time training center for wheelchair basketball. And, you know, at the time in volleyball, I thought I was doing a lot. And I thought I was being a high performance athlete. And then I got exposed to, to what it meant to start um, training at a high level in, 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 in a different sport in, in wheelchair basketball. And uh, yeah, like I said, my three friends were approached to, to come and I managed to somehow weasel my way into getting them to invite me as well. Cause like at that point they hadn't seen me. I hadn't been at the previous games that uh, the Pan Panam games in Toronto there. So the coach hadn't been exposed to me, didn't really know me. But yeah, I showed up this one day and I was like, yeah, hey, I want to I want to do this thing as well. He's like, yeah, well, you know, we like show up 6 a.m. tomorrow and we'll see what happens. And showed up 6 a.m. the next day. And he's like, OK, I guess you come maybe like twice this week. And then eventually you became to like getting accepted into the center and like working the, um, working out there full time. So that's when my eyes really opened to, to wheelchair basketball and to what high performance really meant. You know, they were going we were going, I guess, at that point, five days a week. Uh, you know, two hours each day, we would do a team uh, team session 
on court. And then one hour a day, we'd do more like an individual small group session on individual skills. On top of that, we'd be in the weight room three days a week. And then the other two days a week, we'd be doing like prehab to do like preventative uh, injury kind of stuff. And those that first year, I was the worst player by far. You know, um, of the four guys that started, it was definitely the bottom. Um, you know, I never saw the chance for myself to become pro or to get onto the national team. Like that's not something that was even on my horizon. That's how bad I was in this sport. You know, I never really like sat in a chair. Like I did like um. I did like a little 5K in a wheelchair, but this was just like a horrible, like foldable, portable chair, um, you know, and I did like a 10K in one as well, just because, you know, I wanted to do a 5K or a 10K and I couldn't do it walking because of my injuries. Um, but apart from that, I hadn't really pushed the chair. So, you know, trying to learn all these new skills was, everything was just foreign to me. Um, I remember like my first year was literally just pushing up in the court, you know, um, if I happen to get into the key, I'm a, I'm a big man, right? So I want to get into the key, into the basket, and like you know, shoot an easy shot. If I happen to get into the key, they pass you the ball, and I miss like four times in a row, and then somebody has to rebound and go either way. So like somebody, like the fast person on the other team, would just sit in front of my chair, and I'd be stuck there, and I couldn't go anywhere, right? So training wasn't necessarily a lot of fun, but for me, like I said, I was looking at it as cross training, staying fit for volleyball, like. Um, because we hadn't qualified for the games, uh, we lost the funding that we received here in Canada. So it was more difficult for us to continue training. There wasn't, there isn't a club system in Canada for receiving volleyball. Um, so I, yeah, I just kind of pivoted there. And yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of like, oh yeah, I was the most talented guy in the court, and that's how I shifted to wheelchair basketball. It was literally like I was the worst guy there, and I just continued to grind and I continued to grind and I continued to grind. And after like the fourth year of being at the academy, I was finally at a level where, uh, you know, I felt like I could play a little bit. Um, the team that I was on in, I guess it was 2019, we went uh, and played uh, with the academy. We went and played in the NWBA in the U.S. It's a high-level high league. We played in, I believe it was in Division Two that year. And our team was able to like win the championship. And that was what really like, you know, Made me think like, hey, yeah, I could, I could really do this sport. Um, and then yeah, when we went out to Peru for sitting volleyball, I kind of like right before we left, I posted my um, like a, a little highlight video and uh, a profile up on the IWBF website saying that I'm looking for teams out in Europe. And yeah, I was, I was happy to find that um, four or five teams reached out to me. And yeah, we ended up making a, a deal with the Cologne 99ers and. Um, yeah, it was a great experience to go over there and play. But I feel like, yeah, 100%, it was uh, hard work and keep grinding and don't give up kind of attitude more so than it was I have the talent. I guess one thing that you can say is you can't teach size. And I'm, and I'm a big guy, so that really helps. Um, but apart from that, I feel like it was hard work. What would you be? What would be your message to, to people listening, be it if they newly acquired their amputation or they are developing athlete in terms of the work work ethic that you talk about it's okay i I made it nice and glossy of you transitioned from one national program to another but you're talking about four years of dedication Mm -hmm. yeah it was was literally five days a week waking up at you know five six a.m in the morning you know training would start at seven a.m for us um yeah, it's, it's literally, it's hard work, right? If it's something that you are passionate about, it doesn't necessarily always feel like work. There's definitely times that I felt like, oh, I can't do this. Like, I'm not good enough. Like, should I quit? Like, should I just stop wasting my time? You know, but then I hear stories of these guys that were training with me that are on the national team. Um, like one of the guys, Bo Hedges, uh, you know, I was told a story that it, he went out and tried out for the national team 10 years. 10 times before you finally made the squad, right? It's, it's that sort of dedication that it takes to develop the skills required to be a, a vital piece on, on a national team or on a professional team somewhere, right? Um, yeah, if, if anyone that's acquiring a new, uh, acquired a new injury or is looking to get into, you know, para-sport or any sport at a high level, it's, it's literally like what you put in is what you get back, right? Uh, you know, the... One thing that I wish I would have done differently 
was that those first couple of years when I was at the academy, um, you know, I was doing everything they were asking me to do, but there was opportunities for me to stay later and, and put up more shots to, you know, to improve in my shooting game, which was one of my like weak points, right? Like I could have stayed and done more chair skills to make myself faster, but it's, you know, it's, it's about trying to figure out, you know, what more you can do, right? Like doing the bare minimum is good, but like, it's not going to get you to where you want to be, right? If your goal is to go to a Paralympics, to go play pro, to, you know, to be the best, then you need to train like no one else does, right? Like, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand, right? It's the, it's the mama mentality of, of Kobe Bryant, right? Like, I'm going to outwork my opponent, right? If he's in the gym four days a week, I'm going to be in the gym five days a week. If he's in the gym five days a week, I'll be in the gym six days a week, right? And, and that's what I've really, that's what really like wheelchair basketball has, has opened up my eyes to is what a high performance program really meant to be, right? Um, and then after coming back from, um, from overseas playing pro basketball, I tried to implement that for myself in sitting volleyball, you know? So I've, uh, you know, booked my own court times here, like as much as I can, like right now it's only three days a week, but you know, I've been attempting to get five days a week on court so I can, you know, train different things. And, um, you know, I, I just find that in my mentality is, is, I'm trying to adopt, I guess, that Mamba mentality where I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna outwork my opponents, right? If you're, if you're at this level and your opponents are here, the only way that you're gonna make up that gap is, is to work harder, right? So let me ask you this then, Derek, because I was in the sports in volleyball, so I've got a little bit of an advantage uh, yeah. from an insider perspective. So what you're talking about to, to get up to to a level of getting up with i would say probably the rasa the germans the russians mm -hmm. the egyptians how do you get to the level of the iranians and the bosnians in your in your particular uh, circumstance so so I, i've talked to a lot of the the german players right and the i guess the message there they relay is is the fact that in iran you get paid to play sitting volleyball. It's it's a job. There's professional leagues at the highest of levels. These guys are doing it, you know, they, they live it. Like, this is what they do. They live, breathe, sleep, sitting volleyball. Like, that's what they do. In Germany, they have, you know, they have sitting leagues. In, in most European countries, they have sitting leagues where you can go and you can compete at a really high level with, with good teams, um, you know, and the other major factor is the fact that, you know, when I was in Germany, I went to compete in Poland in these uh, three tournaments. I took a flight. The flight was an hour and a half long. And I was in Poland and I was ready to play. Here in Canada, when I go to my training camp, right? So we have a, a training camp model where we meet usually once a month for five, four or five days. Uh, when I fly over to my training camp, it's a four hour flight, right? So it just gives you uh, an idea of, the difference in scale and size of my country compared to like all of Europe, right? Canada is, is huge and our population like isn't very big. I believe the population of Canada is very similar to the population of, of Poland. It's about like 30, 35 million around there somewhere. You know, like Germany has eight club teams for sitting volleyball, uh, maybe nine, I don't want to misspeak, but you know, they have a population of like 80 something million people, right? It's, the more people you have, the more disabled people you have to pick from to, to play these sports. You know, I don't really know the population of Iran, but I feel like that, that's where the that's where the gap is happening is, um, you know, the opportunity to compete at a high level consistently. Right. Teams like Russia and Iran will play each other often. Right. Uh, Bosnia and Russia will play each other often. You know, there's European championships just happened. Uh, maybe like a month and a month and a half ago, uh, you know, where Bosnia was there, Germany was there, uh, Russia was there, Ukraine was there. All these high level teams get to compete uh, against each other all the time. And like the saying goes, steel sharpens steel, right? Uh, here in Canada, we, we don't really have those opportunities. And I feel like that's where, if we want to go to that next level as a, as a country in this sport, that that's what we need to change. We need to eventually get to a, a position where we have that um, club system in place where guys can compete, whether it's with able-bodied athletes or not, integrated, it doesn't matter. But, you know, we just need more opportunities to play 
at that level where, you know, there's something for guys to work towards. Do you think with, with obviously your continental competition only being every four years, obviously you're based, based on the geography alone, you are at its like disadvantage. Well, and I, I know for a fact it's, you are at a definite disadvantage to say, uh, be it where my where my pro- program was with with, with British in volleyball, being in Europe, and had to obviously gain the respect of a lot of the other European mm-hmm. countries. And did we get there by London? Maybe yes or no, depending on who you right. ask. But where I see the, the 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 issue where you're you and and the Canadian program are suffering is obviously you've got one of those major players, be it the Brazilians, but you only see them maybe every four years. Yeah, that's the tough part, right? Like, so we're pretty close with the U.S. and we've you know had the U.S. come for scrimmages and like exhibition matches and that kind of stuff. But yeah, like in our in our zone, Brazil is and has been like head and shoulders above the pack, right? So it's always been when we have our, our Pan Am games, it's Brazil first, USA second, Canada third, and then, you know, usually like Colombia fourth, and then Costa Rica, Peru, whatever other countries decide to come up. You know, we have, in our zone, even when we have these zonals, we have maybe four to six teams come up. Yeah, three or four of them are competitive, and, and then it kind of like really starts to fall off, right? Like in European championships, the, just happened there were 12 16 16 men's teams i believe it was 16 men's teams and 11 women's teams and everyone is vying you know obviously the the top team like russia bosnia are at a high level but then you know you have like the germany and the ukraines but then after that everyone else is still quite competitive and still vying for those spots right um i feel like when you have so many countries to to play against at any time that you want to be able to have, you want to have a training camp is fine right so like leading up to this uh paralympic qualifier for us this past year you know we we were um we were very limited we were in lockdown and we weren't able to even have our, our regional training camps and i heard stories about um countries like kazakhstan going and having training camps with Ger- uh, with russia right like so they're going over there and they're playing these top level countries so then we come into this tournament and we're underprepared. We haven't really trained. We had maybe like two in-person training camps prior to this tournament. And I'm not trying to make excuses, right? But these countries are going out and playing uh, pretty much daily, right? And then going and competing with these countries at high levels. They're, they're going to be they're going to be ahead of us when we get to these events. And, you know, for us, it took a few days to, to get into the swing of things and knock the rust off. And then, you know, so our first few days were, were pretty, I'm not going to, yeah, it was, our performance wasn't where it needed to be, but, you know, we finished off the tournament pretty strong. And I, I think the only way for us to, uh, to, to bridge that gap is to, to have more like uh, zonal competitions. Right. Um, you know, at the same time that uh, European Championships were happening this year, we were scheduled to have a zonal in our region. Uh, but for some reason, uh, World Paravalli decided to cancel our zonal event, but allow the European event to happen, right? And then there was a question on whether we were going to qualify for World Championship next year because of world ranking points, right? So, like, the European event happened and everyone there gains world ranking points. Our event doesn't happen. We don't gain world ranking points. So now you can get leapfrogged by other teams. It's it's just... Um, COVID's made very, everything very very difficult, you know? Do you think if we rewind back to, to the, the issue you mentioned about Kazakhstan, of obviously your go- governing body is playing by the rules set by... The, the Canadian government and obviously the Kazakhstan right. would maybe have a set, set of different rules. Do you think, obviously, from that perspective, obviously sport is never fair, but in terms of it's made it a little bit more chaotic and I'm not going to use the word shambolic, but in terms of you are playing by a set of rules and they're playing by with another 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 deck, so shall, shall we say? Yeah, like you mentioned, right? Sport is sport is never fair, right? Um, you know, if you live in a first world country where 
you know, you don't have to worry about finding food and putting, you know, food on your table or getting um, a roof over your head. You know, you have a better advantage to train usually than somebody in a third world country that, you know, has to worry about, you know, where their next meal is going to come from, like all those things, right? Like, I, I feel like, you know, harping on those kind of issues doesn't really make us move forward. It just kind of keeps us, keeps us down and keeps us behind. Like, yes, they play by their own set of rules. Um, you know, the Kazakhstan government had uh, whatever rules they had in place. Maybe they followed other protocols and or not. Like, I don't know. Do I wish that I had the opportunity to, to go and, and play and compete against other countries during the pandemic? 100%. Do I fault Kazakhstan for doing it? Not at all. Well, you could say to a certain extent that's old Soviet bodies looking out for each other in terms of USSR, uh, of that being a former territory of theirs, the relationship is probably very, very close. It, it might be, right? And, and I think that's, you know, like in life, uh, in sport as well, it's it's about the relationships you have, right? So if you're on good terms with some of these other teams, they'll invite you for tournaments. If you're not, you won't even know the tournament's happening, right? Um I feel like that's one of the big issues that we had with, like, you know, for, for sitting volleyball in Canada, like it started really late. It started in about 2007, I think it shifted to sitting volleyball. Before that, we, we were doing really well, but in standing volleyball. So, you know, it's amputees, but they're playing with the prosthetic legs on and the arms and whatever. Um, I believe Canada won uh, like a world championship gold at one point. But then we shifted to, to sitting volleyball in 2007 because the, the governing body decided it was more inclusive, and that's the way that we're going to play pair of volleyball at this point. Um, and you, but all these other countries in Europe and stuff like that have been playing sitting volleyball for for decades before that, right? So we were definitely behind the eight ball to start. You know, our performances at our events weren't necessarily where we wanted them to be. And then, yeah, at that point, you don't get invited to these other invitational tournaments, right? Where Teams want to compete against teams around their same skill level, right? Um, like the statement I said before, like steel sharpens steel, right? Like nobody wants to play a team where they win like 25-5, right? It's it's not competitive for either team. It's not fun for the team that's losing. It's not fun for the team that's winning. And, you know, maybe the team that's losing might, might have an opportunity to gain more experience and, you know, to learn the things that they need to work on. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely think that um, making those relationships is very important. And, you know, hopefully Canada uh, moving forward is in a different place than we were in, in years back. Maybe now we've, um, you know, after our performance in, uh, in Duisburg, I feel like we were exposed to some countries that we hadn't been exposed to before. So, like, now we know the Kazakhstans, we know the ukrainians the germans right the croatians like now they're talking to us about coming and having events out there in, in europe so um our, our next event is actually going to be like a friendly tournament out in kazakhstan in february right so is it a, um you know is it unfair sure but you know this is the reality of the world we live in and life's not fair no one's going to hand it to you you gotta go and get it right so do i fall kazakhstan for training the way they did do i does it bother me? No. They surprised they me, but that's obviously I'm talking about. I retired from sitting volleyball eight years ago. So in terms of right. the progression uh, mm. that they've made, we're talking about eight years of progression. So should I have been shocked? No, but obviously moving yourself away from the sport a little bit, it probably mm. goes well. They're shorter than everybody else, except that obviously the big giant well, is bigger, big guy, right? they're bigger yeah. than you. Um, mm. <laughs> but obviously he's not one. He's not one and alone with the sport. With obviously the Iranians have what he's probably more famous the Iranian uh, worldwide awesome. uh, from a Paralympic perspective, just because of his height. Um, but I think because I played them at World Champs in. Oh God, it feels so long ago, over a decade ago, in yeah, 2010. Right. But, and obviously we, we, I think we beat them three sets to two. So that, so that wow. kind of shows their progression of mm-hmm. where, where they've come to, to, to almost qualify for, for Tokyo and GB getting because they're hosts. Yeah. Right. So, and, yeah. and not being on the radar. 
because of other other issues probably similar to the likes of the the us and canada and and maybe some aspects of what would to do with funding mm-hmm. yeah i feel like um you know the i don't really so like the, my only experience with kazakhstan was i believe in like 2014 i think they were at like um last chance qualifier tournament but i don't really remember playing them but yeah, like, uh, you know, not, now they're known for, for being very scrappy, you know, like um, their, their defense is very strong. So yeah, they're, they're not the biggest team. They have that one guy that's, that's really big. He's like over two meters. I don't know exactly his exact height, um, but yeah, he's, he's big. But apart from that, like their team is just, um, just good fundamentally, right? They, they have strong serving, they have strong attacking uh, and their, their defense is, is unreal. They, they don't let very many balls fall. And uh, yeah, they actually 3-0 Germany in the preliminaries of our qualifier. And then Germany was able to, to beat them, I believe was 3-2 in the final. So they're, they're a strong team and it shows, uh, it, it speaks to the testament that, you know, you can overcome these things, right? Like they aren't the biggest team, right? They, but, you know, you work towards your strengths. Like if you're not going to be the biggest team, then be the fastest team, right? If you're not going to be the fastest team, you know, just be the best fundamental team, like whatever it is, right? Like every team can can pull something together. And it's not always about having, you know, the biggest guys on the court or the six best players in the world on the court. Like, you know, um, chemistry in sport matters a lot. We can, we can both speak to that. And, you know, there's been many a time where, you know, six less skilled players have played together and beat players or teams of, of, of a higher caliber because they play together better. They understand where, where each of them is going to be and what position they need to play and what role they need to play in a certain in a certain time, right? I echo that, Derek. In terms of, I think I think the legacy of London 2012 is the style of play that we brought. Obviously, we weren't the biggest, not the fastest. We haven't got uh, decades of experience that you talked about earlier in the episode. So we had to find a style that suited, obviously, GB volleyball. And mm-hmm. it was taking probably aspects of from the women's game of it's not conventionally like the men's about all power, be it right. exception being the Americans, the Russians mm-hmm. have got bigger athletes. Thus, I think you saw later on in the tournaments, you've seen the Iranians pl- effectively running the same plays that we do, but more effectively. But so it's like, well, mm-hmm. okay, we've brought a new dynamic to the sport because maybe those teams necessarily didn't have to do that in the past, but they've seen, seen that it's effective is it works okay let's let's implement that into our game again so i guess as a sport it's an evolution in terms of okay we've not reinvented the wheel or our coaching staff hasn't reinvented the wheel we've kind of maximized what we've got and utilizing well we can't do the conventional thing because we've been swept off the court we've i've been in Mm -hmm. a position of what you've talked about of losing 25-5 in the world champs against the Russians. You right. fast forward two years on. Okay, we weren't super competitive in, in London 2012. And I said this to family, that's probably the worst. And I played the Russians probably a lot in those two years, um, which I think um, exemplifies what you were saying of, I've had probably more exposure to those high-level teams just based on where I live. Mm-hmm. Of that's probably the worst I saw them play was in London 2012 because of the 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 um obviously the 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 I can't think of the word but in terms of we had 99 percent of the crowd so thus it's an right. environment and mm-hmm. I think because of say if we rewind probably the games previously where obviously the, the Olympic crowds would have been huge in China Paralympic mm-hmm. crowd wasn't like that so I guess for them it's like well. We don't normally get arenas full, like 10,000 people. I think probably yeah. would have been the same. Mm-hmm. Thus, it's probably intimidating. If we would have probably been maybe accelerated a couple of years forward, we probably could take advantage and make it, you know, 25, 20, and you're in a match. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And like, what's, what's happened with uh, sitting volleyball in the UK since, since London? Is it just yeah. kind of falling off, Pretty or much gone in the toilet? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that I that it's it's sad to see. Uh, I probably saw it ha- probably going to happen long before the games even happened. It's like, well, mm-hmm. 
is this going to be a flash in a pan experiment? Mm. Obviously, I was proven right. Did I see it, the program last into Rio? In the men's team, it was probably going to be very, very difficult just by the region that we're in of mm-hmm. quali- qualifying outright. It was right. probably in the middle of the pack uh, mm. of the like probably like tier three nations with the Croats, the, the Dutch. And now it's it pro- because of money, because of not being able to attract new players, probably mm. in the same position of you, you guys. Uh, and the Americans in kind of like this wilderness, and right. they've got the luxury of being in Europe, thus because they're no longer deemed or seen as competitive because they're not on the 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 the, the main circuit. You you've now lost that all that credibility and respect that you earned in the lead up to London is is I won't say pretty much lost, but obviously some countries. Um, we've still got, I still keep in touch with most of the Croats um, just because I, I was friendly with them. And we had mm-hmm. a training camp before London. That would, it's like one of the only teams that would embrace having our presence yeah. <laughs> with them. And okay, one of the guys did come over to train with us in the hopes of making the team and that fell through. And I feel, I feel bad for him because ultimately he was sold a, a promise and a dream and, and the more the governing body didn't actually keep to their words. So to, for him to kind of reciprocate it back and kind of go, okay, you come to us for five days to, to, to Zagreb, which it was, was, was an amazing experience for me mm-hmm. just from a cultural perspective uh, of not, of going to, to, to a different country, uh, let alone the volleyball. Um, and I probably, probably gained a lot more, training those five days against another team versus training against ourselves. Yeah, exactly. We were full-time mm-hmm. uh, in the run-up to to London because one of the guys who didn't make the team, when he actually saw us at the game, it was like night and day. As the team he, he got dropped from to the team that turned up to the games, it was like, well, it was like a different beast. It's like, well, well, that's going to happen if you train two to three times a day with each other. Yeah. almost seven days a week a team is going to transform instantly okay a few of us were full-time before that but it's like what well, it, it's it's massive praise from from somebody from the outside that's been within to kind of go well wow it's like unrecognizable but you have to probably credit the Croats for that because they didn't mm-hmm. have to do that didn't have to yeah. train train with us in their in their off season because they didn't qualify it was probably a little bit of humility and huma- uh, humanity to kind of go, well, we're going to give you the best preparations that we can and mm-hmm. we hope you do very well. And I, 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 my hat goes off to them. Okay, it's now nine years, nine years later, but I still speak to Ivan quite often in terms of... Right, of course. It's like massively appreciated to kind of go, maybe I probably undervalued at the time but it's those things that you talk about of being exposed to the the better teams are invaluable because ultimately when you come up against teams in in the tournament there is there is no okay there there was at the, back then there was obviously 12 teams so there are some whooping boys just basically because mm-hmm. africa is uh uh, once you drop off from Egypt, it's not very good. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, they had two. Because um, I don't agree with this, but being Africa split into two of mm-hmm. above the Sahara and below it, it's like, well, it's one continent. If, right. if they should all play together. And because Europe is huge, you could say, well, why isn't North and South so America split? split yeah. like in other sports i think canada and america be very happy with that it's like <laughs> two horse race and the winner takes the prize and obviously brazil would win in south america thus you don't have to face them and you've got more chance but i think coming back to your point of that exposure i think obviously what we've we've uh, we've uh, allevi- alleviated from is you have to gain that kind of country's respect before they will give you 
a seat at the table. And I think obviously yeah. you've managed to do that by being invited to, to Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think that a lot of it comes down to, you know, I, I agree with you to a certain extent where it's, you know, like earning that respect and stuff like that. But um, the way that I've kind of looked at it is, um, you know, just trying to expedite my own um, my own growth and, and, and reaching my potential. You know, the opportunities for me to do that here in Canada were, were quite limited, you know, to find that full-time training center environment that I, you know, once I was exposed to that full-time training center for in wheelchair basketball, I realized that that is the kind of environment that I would thrive under, right? The, the growth that I was able to make in wheelchair basketball in four years was greater than the growth that I made in sitting volleyball from 2012 to at the time, I guess it would have been uh, 2018 or whatever it was, 2019. So in my mind, I'm like, well, like if, if my growth in this other sport is, is so much faster, like what is what is the factor? And the factor for me was the full-time training center environment. So I tried to find that myself and then, you know, going overseas, going to Germany and being, able to, you know, like last year training there three days a week. And then when I went this year, I was, like I said, like seven times a week, I was training with the German club team, Leverkusen. I was invited to training camps with the German national team. You know, I was uh, training with them and we were doing scrimmages in those in those uh, training camps, um, you know, and then uh, training with the, uh, with the Dutch team. Uh, There's a club team that's not, I don't know, maybe like an hour and a half drive away from where I was living. So I was going on Tuesday nights uh, to that training with the Dutch team. And then on Fridays, you know, I would have a training with my club in Leverkusen from four to six. And then I would take a two and a half hour drive to go to the to, to Netherlands. So I could train with their national team on like Friday and then two sessions on Saturday, you know? So like I realized what I needed in order to expedite my growth. And I was able to find that in, in Europe. You know, I, I wish I was able to find that here in Canada. Unfortunately, that's um, not the reality that I live in, but you know, I, I think that a lot of athletes expect things like that to be maybe given to them. And don't understand that there there is other opportunities to to help their growth and, and find their potential quicker, maybe in um, another geographical location. And uh, you know, for wheelchair basketball, it's, it was very easy, right? Like I, I went over there, I went to Germany to play, and you know, they covered my flights, they covered my apartment, and I received uh, you know support in that way. I, I went over to to play sitting volleyball and it was all on my own dime, right? Like, so I go there for three months last year uh, and I went there for four months this year, like each trip costs about like $15,000, right? And, and that's not something that's, um, I guess, a, a possibility for, for most players to, to do, right? Um, for me, I'm really passionate about, about sport, about trying to, to maximize my, my, my potential. Uh, and so I chose to do that. And it's, it's, it's a lot of sacrifice that people don't understand, right? I have a fiance here in Canada. We have uh, a house, um, an apartment, a, car, a flat that we pay for. We, um, you know, so when I go over to Europe, like I'm still paying for the flat here in Toronto. Uh, and then I'm paying for an apartment in Europe. I'm paying for, um, you know, a car and insurance and gas and food and my flights. Like it, it all adds up. And, you know, I, I don't want to feel like I'm like, oh, what was me? But, you know. Um, it's not cheap. I, I wish that, uh, there were more professional leagues that you can play in, um, in city volleyball. Like I know that like Iran has, uh, one of those leagues, but it's, it's difficult to be, there, there's a lot of politics involved. It's difficult to be invited to play in, in those leagues. I know that like, um, you know, Brazil has, has a, a fairly strong league as well. And, um, uh, you know, I know of a few players, from Europe that were invited to play in in that league this year um and you know my my aspiration is to one day be invited to to play in Brazil to be invited to play in Iran and um you know play at the highest level levels like that's that's what I want to do whether it's you know if I can't do it by qualifying for the Paralympics then I want to go and play in an Iranian league to to see how I you know stack up against these players and for me it's about trying to absorb any information that I can from, from, from these players, right. These guys that have been at the highest of levels and, you know, are they doing things differently than me? Like I I watch a a ton of gameplay. I watch a ton of video and um, you know, 
I, I try to analyze uh, people's play that have similar, you know, injuries, impairments to myself and be like, how does he move on the court? You know, like one of the, the one of the better players, one of the best players in, in Russia, uh, Savichev, he's also a single leg above knee amputee. Um, you know, for him, it's a little more advantageous. He's on the other side, so it helps. He's uh, left leg amputee and he's right-handed, so he's able to push in a different way when he attacks than, than I am. But, you know, for the longest time, I'd always sit with my legs out in front of me, and then I watch the Russians, and they're all playing with their leg tucked, and I'm like, why don't I start trying to play like this? And, you know, I, I gained resistance when I first started trying that, and guys are like, oh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Like, you shouldn't try it. Like, just you're not flexible enough. And I'm like, oh, well, if I'm not flexible enough, then I'll start stretching more. So I started stretching like, literally an hour. I literally started stretching an hour a day, like, to, to try to be able to, like, sit in this position while I play, right? And and these are the kind of things that, you know, I was willing to sacrifice to to try to get to, to that highest of levels, right? And, you know, maybe I get there, maybe I don't, who knows? But at this point, I have all this information, I have all this knowledge, and I'm willing to pass it on to the next generation. Like, I would love to get into coaching one day and, uh, you know, further the the development of the sport in my country. I, like I said before, I, I would love to start a sitting volleyball league in Canada. That's something that, you know, I want to try getting off the ground as well to to help this sport grow as much as possible so that, you know, I, I don't want to, yeah, so hopefully it doesn't go the same way as it did in, in your country, right? I, I don't want it to just fall away. I don't want it to stop here. Um, you know, I understand that funding is a huge thing, but, you know, eventually if somebody wants to do it, they can, they can push for a bit. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of corporations out there that are willing to, to help fund um, like Parasport. It's, I think it's very on trend right now. Mm. Like, you know, Toyota really backed um, a lot of, uh, a lot of Parasport, like leading up to uh, the games in, in Tokyo. Right. So, you know, I know that like when I was in, when I was in Germany, like they were sponsored by uh, one of their sponsors was, was Toyota. Like, the wheelchair basketball program in Canada was, was partly funded by Toyota, right? Like, so there is opportunities to, to find that funding in other places and, um, you know, grow the sport that I, that I'm so passionate about. What do you think is missing then, Derek? Because obviously what you alluded to is cult, is culture of the, the oh, called you the, the American bicycle team. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Stay off the bat with that one. I apologize. Um, no, it's okay. Be it, obviously, they've got a pedigree and a very established history within the program. What, why do you think that outside of wheelchair basketball and say anything to do with ice hockey the canadians are missing a step because ultimately you are i think as an as a nation quite determined quite rugged i think the the, the actual environment that you live in is is quite it's in a quite hostile environment obviously outside of ontario and things like that obviously once you go further west and further north it's very blit obviously we're recording in december i i wouldn't want to be outside yeah it's a little cold yeah but why why do you think that you have to be proactive and go out of your way to spend obviously money out of your pocket and we're talking canadian dollars not us dollars now yeah. um so it, it's it, it's a it's a lot of money to to establish yourself to get better because ultimately you what you obviously came against flexibility and i'm in coaching now it's like it's not a big deal it's like off you know you want to improve your range of movement and you only have to stretch more that's not a big deal i i i i would say to you go for it what what what's what do you need what do you need to be facilitated for you to be able to be at your peak if it's going to make you better player and better performance i i'd say pray i say praise it in terms of if you 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 if it didn't work obviously they wouldn't be using it and and we're talking about obviously somebody that's been in the game over a decade right in the sport and ultimately still successful and winning I, individual awards in tournaments yeah I, th I think the biggest um like the biggest difference between uh, sitting volleyball and these other sports that you mentioned with wheelchair basketball and uh, sledge hockey or para ice hockey as they call it. Um, 
the, the major difference is how long uh, it's been developed in the country, right? So um, we're about 20, 30 years behind where wheelchair basketball started, right? So now there's wheelchair basketball leagues in Canada. They're, I'm not going to say that they're most competitive, but they exist, right? There's where there's club teams you can go and play sledge hockey with, uh, you know, like, and unfortunately there, there isn't anything like that for sitting volleyball yet. And, um, you know, like I mentioned to you earlier, the city volleyball has only started in Canada in 2007. Like that's one of the major reasons I think why we are where we are and why I chose to, you know, to go overseas. Like for, for us, um, so here in my city right now, there's two athletes. It's me and our uh, young libero, Nate Nassif. Uh, we have uh, one player in Montreal. Uh, we have uh, one player in Edmonton. I think we have four players in Calgary. And we have two players in Manitoba, right? So it, it's with these vast distances to get to any of these cities. Oh, we also have one player in Thunder Bay in Ontario. But that's like a 18 hour drive or something silly like that. Um, you know, so he's in our, in our, in our, my province, but like he's inaccessible to me pretty much unless, you know, I fly there, he flies here. It's, it's, it's very difficult. And, you know, like it's not, it's not a profession here, right? Most guys have jobs, go to school, have a life outside of, of sitting volleyball, right? So it's, um, you know, whereas, with the guys in wheelchair basketball, they've been developing the sport for a lot longer. They were finally after a, um, you know, around the time of like the Pan Am games in Toronto, uh, they were able to start like a full-time training center doing like a centralized model, you know, guys were offered, uh, you know, the organization was able to get them, you know, part-time jobs and that kind of stuff, like in the building where we train at, at Toronto Pan Am sports center. Right. So like guys would like just man the front desk or, or or do whatever, like, you know, to try to offset the cost of, of living there. There's, you know, a lot of people had to um, relocate from their home province to Toronto. Uh, there's a legacy um, housing project that's in place. So, um, you know, high performance athletes that train at this location at CSIO are able to get on a wait list to try to get into this uh, apartment building that has subsidized rent for high performance athletes and um, low income people, right? So, you know, whereas rent in Toronto usually goes for two and a half thousand dollars a month, these people are able to get their rent subsidized and they're paying $500 a month or $600 a month to, to live there, right? There's there's funding in the program because they've been successful. They have more funding than us. They're, they're able to, to incentivize people to come to those programs, right? Like we're sitting volleyball. It's, um, you know, we haven't had that success yet where the government sees us as being podium potential. So they're not pouring that money into us yet. Right. That's, uh, unfortunately it's the nature of the beast, right? Like, Everyone says, like, oh, I can't get better because there isn't enough money. It's like, well, like, there is enough money because you're not better. But, like, I'm not better because there isn't – and you're just, like, chasing your tail all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So, eventually, something has to change and someone has to be willing to to sacrifice, whether it's their time or their money or whatever, to, to go out and, and get better and get that program to a level where it needs to be, right? Like, with beach volleyball for a long time, that's where they were with, um, you know, with our, with our sports body. Uh, they weren't receiving any sort of funding. And then finally they went out and uh, started performing. They, they, the athletes started to, you know, fund the camps on their, on their own dime and that kind of stuff. Like even with the sitting women's program, like right now they, they qualified for the last two Paralympics, right? They were in Rio and they just came back uh, from their best performance in, in Tokyo. They, they finished fourth, right? They had an opportunity to finish top three. Like that, that's amazing. And, and now, uh, I feel like the exposure is getting better, you know, like with social media and that kind of stuff, right? Like we can definitely, I think the biggest thing has been the the exposure of the sport, right? Uh, you know, before I started playing, I, I didn't know what sitting volleyball was. I'd never heard of it. I'd never seen it. Like even when I try to explain to a stranger on the street, when I run into them, it's like, Hey, yeah, what do you do? Like, yeah, I play sitting volleyball. Oh yeah. You guys play wheelchairs. Like, uh, how does this work? Right. I'm like, no, no, you sit on the floor. It's like, Oh, you play on an eight foot net. Like, no, our internet's lower, of course, a bit smaller. Like, lucky now I have some like videos on my phone that I can like pull up and show people. But 
Um, you know, I think that overcoming all those hurdles is is what's been limiting the growth of of the sport here. And that's why, you know, I chose to take my future into my own hands, my own destiny into my own hands and and go and do this stuff overseas at high cost, right? There was a lot of sacrifice financial. Like I was away from my loved ones. I was away from my fiance for like four months this time, three months the last time. Like those things aren't easy, but, you know, without sacrifice, there, there is no gain, right? Mm-hmm. We, we must always give up something if we want to achieve greatness, whether it's time, money, or, you know, other intangibles, right? And I'm, I'm willing to do that to, to achieve my goals. Some might say, though, Derek, why don't you not take the easy way out and 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 uh, transfer fully to wheelchair basketball? Because you you you've you've shown that you were capable of competing at a high level. Thus, that that unless oh, I would probably disagree to a certain extent, but if we use that model of you've got the outlet to play professionally in Germany, Italy, Spain. Um, Pretty much, most European countries have got a professional basketball league. Mm-hmm. Why do you not go? And, why do you not just say, "Well, I've attempted to to get as good as I can, but there's only there's only there's, there's a ceiling that's stopping me getting any further. Why don't I just go to this one, and then obviously the the trajectory is mine and mine alone." I feel like if humanity had that mindset we would have never gone to the moon right we would have never gone into outer space we don't do things because they're easy we do them because they're hard right yes i can take the easy route i'm not going to say it's easy but you know i can take the easy route and go and change sports and and you know i can go to an individual sport i can go to track and field i can do those things but this is the sport that i'm passionate about i really care about the guys that uh i'm friends and, and teammates with and I want to see, I want to see us be able to find that success that I know we're capable of. Um, I, I see how, I, I see the level that where we have the potential to to achieve, and I feel like we're not there yet. And I, um, you know, I don't even feel like I'm at my max potential in in this sport. I feel like I still have a lot to learn, and I still have a lot of growth to to make. And I I love. I love learning. I love, you know, being a sponge and, and listening to the feedback of other individuals. And um, I still have, I still play wheelchair basketball. I still do that. I just don't necessarily do it at that same level. I have chosen to, you know, put my efforts into into trying to qualify with, with volleyball. Right when um, before going to to Peru, I I tried out for the national team uh, in Canada for wheelchair basketball and I unfortunately didn't make it. Uh, I'm not the youngest of guys, I'm 39 years old, right? I'm never gonna get any younger. We have other guys that are coming up that are the same class that maybe aren't the same size as I am, but you know, are pretty quick. And maybe like, you know, if they, you know, another guy that's 26 years old has 13 years before he gets to my age, right? Like what kind of development can he make in those certain years as opposed to like where I am right now, right? So. The, the organization chose to go in a different route. Um, there was obviously legends like Pat Anderson were, were on the team. Like he was one of the guys that went to Tokyo, like uh, Nick Gonchin, unfortunately. Like there was another guy, um, another legend, uh, David Ng. Unfortunately, because of the change in classification, like he wasn't one of the athletes that was chosen to go to, to Tokyo. But, you know, so for me in my class to have tried to, uh, make it onto the national team in Canada at the time. It, it wasn't feasible. There's was other fours and four fives that were uh, younger and more developed than me at the time. And um, yeah, so I, I chose to try to pursue greatness in, in sitting volleyball, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's more work. It's uh, the environment's more difficult. It's more... Um, individual than it is, uh, you know, than other opportunities I have for other sports here, but I have a passion for it. And um, like I said, I I see the potential that our team has, and I don't think that we've reached that potential yet. And until we have and surpassed it, then I feel like I'm going to stay with the sport and, you know, pursue it at this level, you know, eventually, like, obviously I'll retire like everyone else does, 
but I feel like I'd, I'd still want to continue helping the team develop by, you know, maybe helping in coaching or, or another avenue after I'm done. I commend you for that. Thank you. So we're coming to the close of the episode. And I'd like to ask all my guests this. If you got to sit down with any athlete, dead or alive for that matter, who would that be and why? So uh, I kind of alluded to him earlier. Uh, Kobe Bryant would be the athlete that I chose. Um, the reason is uh, I would just like to pick his brain as to why he chose, you know, the path that he did, why, why he I guess the same question you posed to me, why did he choose to put in all that extra work, right? Like he was already one of the best in the game. Why did he continue to, to work as if he wasn't, right? Um, and, and what kept him motivated and, you know, just picking his brain about those things would be, um, would be the reason that I'd want to sit down with him. And my final question before we close the show, Derek, if you have to summarize what we've been speaking in, about into one sentence for people to take away what would that be never give up your your destiny is in your own hands if you work hard enough you can achieve anything you want so once again derek thanks again for coming on the mindset athlete podcast thank you so much for having me it's been my pleasure thanks again for tuning in and i hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hoth. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute, not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. <laughs>